Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So today's program is going to focus on natural therapies, and I've been, I'm on several weekly Zooms where I get uh, with other doctors and other uh, one that's with a bunch of nutritionists, which is really interesting because it's about genetics of nutrition. And I'm just learning so much from that one. But one of the things that I uh, picked up was a very, very interesting article that someone posted in the chat on that nutrition. Uh, and it was, it's called COVID-19 Melatonin as a Potential Adjuvant Treatment. And this was a collaboration between the uh, Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences and the University of Texas Health in San Antonio. So uh, nice to see Americans and Chinese collaborating. Uh, And I'm I'm not going to talk so much about COVID, although the article does uh, kind of use that as uh, probably in order to get published. But uh, I was fascinated to learn about all of these wonderful things that melatonin does. Now, of course, melatonin is the makes-you-drowsy hormone. It's uh, suppressed by light, and when you're using it to try to help with sleep, it has certain properties, one of which is it only lasts in your body for about less than 20 minutes. So you kind of have to take it orally or sublingually and get the timing right. Obviously, orally, it's going to take a little while to break down, get into your bloodstream. But then once it's there, you'd better you'd better be lying down in the dark. And by the way, your own natural melatonin is released on a cycle, usually starting about 16 hours after you saw morning light. So if you get a lot of bright light and you need more as you get older, so if you can get outside or use a light box, uh, that morning light really helps reset the body clock. It's not just for jet lag. But mel- melatonin itself uh, is really interesting. It's It has indirect antiviral actions. It's antioxidant. It's immune-enhancing. It's anti-inflammatory. And in one study, they took mice and they infected their nervous system with a virus. And then they gave one group of mice melatonin. And what they found was that the group that got the melatonin had less virus in their bloodstream, reduced paralysis, reduced death, and a measurably lower level of virus in their systems. And there's also been studies looking at other viruses like respiratory syncytial virus, something that often RSV often affects children. It's uh, definitely a bad uh, infection, can put kids in the hospital. Melatonin down-regulates the acute oxidative injury of the the uh, lungs in this and also releases pro-inflammatory cytokines. And uh, this is super interesting. It also seems to work with CERT1, sirtuin, which is that uh, molecule that is kind of associated with longevity. It's related to lengthening your telomeres, which correlate with cellular aging. And it's also, uh, that's the one that you're supposed to take the resveratrol for, just to kind of orient you on this. And basically what happens is that melatonin actually inhibits the transcription of certain uh, pro-inflammatory gene products. It uh, involves suppressing NF-kappa-B, and NF-kappa-B is the thing that starts the whole prostaglandin cycle. So, for example, if you're taking curcumin or turmeric, you're inhibiting NF-kappa-B at the top of the cascade of biochemical events that eventually lead to the transcription of the cyclooxygenase enzyme that breaks down cellular wall and turns it into prostaglandins, which are pro-inflammatory. This is what ibuprofen and the other non-steroidals do. They do it at the very end of the cascade, so you need much bigger doses because you're already, you already have an avalanche of stuff happening. 
and uh, curcumin goes to the top of this. Well, it turns out so does melatonin. And if you stop and think about it, sleep does help you recover from injury. And sleep deprivation is actually one way to induce uh, fibromyalgia, which eventually, with recurrent pain, actually causes reprogramming of the pain sensors in the brain. So everything is deeply connected, as you'll know, that's a theme of this program. But you get less, with melatonin, you're going to end up with less tumor necrosis factor alpha. That's the thing, by the way, that all those biologicals in rheumatoid arthritis and uh, psoriasis and all those other things, they're going after TNF alpha, reduces uh, interleukin 1b, interleukin 6, interleukin 8. And these are all pro-inflammatory chemical signals, word for that cytokine, but I like chemical signals because you don't really need to subclassify them. And it's more understandable. You release a signal, it gets received, something happens. Now, there are also anti-inflammatory signals, and melatonin releases IL-10, which is one of the major inflammatory, uh, anti-inflammatory cytokines. So this is, this is a scene in humans, it's seen in mice, it's seen at the cellular level, it's a real thing. And melatonin also has high levels of antioxidant effect. You know about vitamin C and vitamin E. They mainly work as antioxidants, preventing oxygen-free radicals from damaging your DNA. Well, melatonin acts as a free radical uh, scavenger directly, and it also upregulates things like superoxide dismutase, which is one of the main protective things in your mitochondria to keep you from damaging that mitochondrial DNA, so critical to energy energy production and so critical in preventing muscle loss and neurological loss, neuron loss with aging. So melatonin, what else does it uh, do? Well, it hits the toll-like receptor 4, another really important signal for the innate immune system, and it's anti-inflammatory through this toll-like receptor. By the way, toll-like receptors are one of the ways that bacteria inflame the body. And so that manipulation of the toll-like receptors is something that the good bacteria in your microbiome are very good at doing, making that less likely anti-inflammatory. There are multiple models here, and essentially any kind of inflammation, whether it's caused by sepsis, radiation, or reperfusion ischemia, which is basically when tissue gets starved for oxygen and then you give it uh, back blood, or when it gets starved for blood, you give it back blood, oxygenated blood later. The, The system can't handle the oxygen, and the oxygen is actually toxic. There's a big study using... Uh, melatonin in newborns with respiratory distress, and that was very successful. So it is also affecting directly the macrophages, which are your big eater cells. Macrophages means big eaters. These are big amoebas that run around in your lung, in your skin, and if a bacteria gets in there, they just eat it and essentially drop it into a bag of acid inside themselves and destroy it. So melatonin, sleep, looking really good. But what about supplementing with it? Well, there's a lot of studies looking at, because I'm sure, like me, by this time you're saying, okay, how much do I need to take to get this wonderful anti-inflammatory effect? And I'm about to give you the answer. So first of all, This was a study looking at eight weeks. It was a placebo-controlled, double-blind, so nobody knew. Uh, Eight weeks oral intake of six milligrams a day of melatonin. That's not that much. It caused a significant decrease in serum levels of interleukin-6, tumor necrosis alpha, and HSCRP. This was in people with diabetes and periodontitis, gum disease, uh, a, a fairly common problem for diabetics, 
another trial, and this one was in people with severe multiple sclerosis. Very interesting. 25 milligrams a day of melatonin for six months reduced serum concentrations of lipoperoxides, which is an indicator of nerve cell wall damage. So actually, you can see that it's reducing the damage of the multiple sclerosis, as well as all of those uh, chemical signals that I already mentioned, the tumor necrosis factor alpha, the IL-6, the the, uh, IL-1. So uh, super important. I mentioned that brain reperfusion. They've also done studies on coronary artery reperfusion, surgical stress. And in these studies, they gave melatonin for, uh, at 10 milligrams uh, and also 6 and also 5 milligrams. And they all induced a reduced level of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So we know that it doesn't take much melatonin to have a profound beneficial effect. And you don't release that much overnight. Now, of course, we're talking about oral treatment or sometimes intravenous treatment, and not all of that is going to get into the brain. So let's keep, let's put that out there. But you actually produce melatonin yourself overnight with sleep at microgram, uh, microgram levels, like a hundred micrograms, so a tenth of a milligram, and it still works in, you know, wild type humans not taking it as a supplement. So what we need to do, I think, is do more studies on dosing. You're probably asking, well, am I going to get resistance to melatonin? And the answer is probably not. Humans given one gram a day, that's a thousand milligrams a day, had no problems, no uh, rebound insomnia, nothing like that. So it's super interesting and super available and something that... If you do get COVID, uh, which hopefully you won't, but uh, certainly couldn't hurt you. And with all of these other things, particularly if you have gum disease or diabetes, this is probably a reasonable thing to be taking. And if you happen to be in the intensive care unit, this is a very high pro-inflammatory, whatever you're there, you're sick. And melatonin can probably help you weather that challenge to your body much more effectively. So I'm definitely going to be encouraging the use of five or ten, six to ten milligrams of melatonin in any of my patients with chronic conditions. And I have a few people on multiple sclerosis I'll probably pitch it to because these are doses that I consider to be reasonable. Prior to this, I've primarily been using higher doses of melatonin in my cancer survivors. And now, I understand why there's benefit to that. It's probably through the reduction of the free radicals and the reduction of inflammation. Both things are known to worsen your chances of staying, of remaining cancer-free, probably because they have an adverse effect on your ability to immunologically identify and destroy any cancer cells as they appear. I was flipping through back issues of the Journal of the American Medical Association. You know, these are that and the New England Journal are weekly. And so if you're not careful, it's kind of like sweeping leaves out of the driveway. They grow into these giant columns of journals and you kind of just go, oh, my God, I just need I I," you feel so guilty about throwing them away because there's good stuff in there. Or One feels guilty. It's a little bit uh, interesting, the psychological aspects of what we are willing to hoard. And one of the things I'm not willing to hoard is medical journals. Uh, But this one caught my eye because I thought it was so incredibly wrong-headed. But let me lay it out, first of all. This is uh, written by uh, uh, people at the Department of Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, three male doctors, they, I don't know, presumably they're teaching because this is the medical school that they're out. And, well, all I can say is, wow. Medicare Advantage for All, a potential path to universal coverage. So let's start with this uh, first statement. You know, the ad- first paragraph talks about people advocating going for to Medicare 
uh, for all, which would consolidate private and public health insurance into a single payer administered by this by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Right? We all know what Medicare for all uh, is. It it figured prominently in the last presidential election, and I have problems with Medicare for all because it's Medicare essentially kind of pays a low rate, but it doesn't discriminate against necessary and unnecessary services. So there can you can game it. And in fact, uh, there was a study coming out possibly four or five years ago that looked at a particular county in Texas and a county in Cincinnati, the one where the Cleveland Clinic is, and they looked at how many surgeries were done. They looked at, they risk stratified the Medicare patients by age and comorbidities. And essentially the doctors in Texas were doing a lot of arguably unnecessary stuff to their patients in ways that increased their income. So Medicare for all has several key limitations And this is the premise that really blew my mind. Eliminating private health insurance would effectively eliminate a large sector of the U.S. economy. Additionally, this model would leave an unclear role for managed care organizations, which are now how most individuals in the U.S. currently receive health insurance coverage. And so uh, they have that survey. They have a survey, 1,000 adults, adults, 58% would oppose a national health plan if it eliminated private insurance. And Medicare Advantage for All is going to create a national guarantee for health insurance while maintaining private sector involvement in health insurance administration. Is it me, or are these guys heavily invested in the uh, private insurance model and don't want to see it go away? So basically, the rest of this article goes into how this would look, how insurance companies uh, would be paid a capitated risk-adjusted premium for its insured population, and then the patients could have health insurance provided directly by a private insurer because, it, of course, it's so much better to fund all of that oversight and all of those prior authorizations and all of those phone calls because, you know, there's so much value added by the fact that the private insurance industry siphons off 30 to 35% of the health, of the dollars spent on healthcare in this country. Now, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but that's a little bit nuts. So essentially the argument here is kind of a freedom argument and it's kind of a that the health insurance industry is too big to fail. And that it would be politically difficult. Essentially, it would be a quote unquote job killer and therefore not, you know, not viable politically. And these are not good reasons not to put the bell on the cat. These are excuses not to put the bell on the cat. Now, I agree that Medicare for all is going to be difficult. And I'm not entirely sure about the proposals here in California to create a single-payer system. As we say in medicine, the devil's in the details. Health insurance by employers in this age where people want to shift jobs and work as consultants and the incredibly high prices that if you make a medium income, you end up paying for your health care. We're talking about huge amounts, uh, 15 15 to $30,000 a year for a, an individual. That's just forcing the consolidation and l- limiting what people can do. I think we could have a real, I think we just like we're doing with oil and the coal industry, I think what we need is a plan to rehabilitate all of those mid-level people in the insurance industry. I don't want to see them thrown out on the street. They have skills, administrative skills, and I'm sure we can find a place for them in this new Medicare for All system. Again, I'm not sure exactly what the idea of competing, different entities competing, really serves 
we just listened here on this program to an hour of why you can't use a market for water or electricity. You can't treat it as a commodity because no people cannot walk away from paying for electricity or paying for water. Well, I don't think that people have any more control over health care, over their choice to purchase health care. And those who can't afford health care generally end up sicker and ultimately become a load on the state after they've gotten bankrupted by their health care costs. Come on, folks. This, this market model is not working, and nobody else even attempts it. We're crazy. We need to find a better way. And I think that the, uh, Mr. Keeley, who was on an hour ago, if you didn't catch that program, I thought he had some very succinct things to say about utilities and how they need to be managed. And I would promote the idea that health care needs to be dealt with as a utility, whatever we do with healthcare reform, we have to consider this a basic human need and a utility and not, not a commodity. And that's what's wrong ultimately with the current system. And it really needs to change. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit to uh, emails. Uh, this came from David from Santa Cruz and David writes, um, I wanted you to take a look at this article from Dean Ornish uh, in an interview where he talks about a study done that showed that front lo- that 3,000 frontline healthcare workers who were exposed to COVID every day were much less likely to get moderate to severe co- COVID if they ate a healthy plant-based diet. So I'm looking now at the actual article. It was published in the British Journal of uh, Nutrition. And I was able to find it by just uh, Googling COVID uh, plant-based diet. So you can go find it for yourself. Uh, it definitely showed that if, uh, and it was uh, quite, a, quite a lot of people, uh, if you were eating a plant-based, primarily plant-based diet or a pescatarian diet, just fish and vegetables, you had a 73 percent reduction in moderate to severe COVID. If uh, you were eating an Atkins diet, high protein, or a keto diet, you had a 400% increased risk of moderate to severe COVID. That's a really, really amazing figure. And I think it speaks to the idea that these plant-based phytochemicals are extremely protective from inflammation because that's what drives the bad COVID. So we're going to go to uh, Christopher in Santa Cruz, and then we'll be taking a break. So hello, Christopher, you're on the air. Hi, there you are. Yeah, here that. I am. Yeah, hi, good, good evening to you. Uh, quick question, um, and it's more of a jogging you back a few years on one of your previous shows a while ago where you had um, you were talking about you know, if people get older, they're, they're, you were talking energy, so it just made me think of this today. Um, you were talking about, like, uh, someone, you could do these very short burst exercises to, like, enhance your primordial mitochondria or something. I forget, my, my wife and I were trying to figure out what that, you used a term way back when, like, you know, you can do these short bursts, like, mm-hmm. like intense sprints, but right. only, like, short, like 100 yards or something, but then that would do enough to kind of jar and invigorate some aspect of, you know, your energy production, I think. And, and, and am I totally off base? And no, 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 that's that that's exactly to? right. Um, well, don't, I'm, I'm not sure what precise term I used um, that many years ago, but let me explain how this works, and maybe we'll come across the term in the process. So the mitochondria have some of their own DNA, and they can't, re- they are, they, they are essentially primordial bacteria that uh, over time they've, traded they've put they've parked some of uh, their genes in the human genome but they've kept some in their mitochondrial genome as well which is you know what whatever they need to be pr- making there uh, they've they've got what they need to, they don't have to go hit the human genome to make it so I'm sure it's very functional uh, and they are what take uh, glucose or two carbon moieties and generate ATP. So they run it through a complicated series of enzyme uh, 
steps, if you call, if you want to think of it, it's kind of like a giant pinball machine. And kind of visualize the mitochondria, they sort of look like a pinball machine, really, if you take a look at them. You can imagine a little, a little molecule kind of bouncing around in there off of these, these uh, cristae that are pointing inside of the mitochondria. And uh-huh. as they hit uh-huh. those things, they generate energy. And the number of pings, uh, it's like 36 or 38 molecules of ATP is the maximum number of pings you can get. But, uh, and the more uh, demand that you pl- that the muscles uh, place on themselves, they they want to get enough oxygen in. So if you're if you're training, your your blood vessels get bigger. You supply more blood to the muscles, and as long as they have oxygen, they can run things through the pinball machine. If there's not enough oxygen, uh-huh. then the mito- then what happens is the mitochondria. Hey, we're maxed out, guys. We need more oxygen. Sorry, I can't deliver it. So two things happen. One is that you send a message uh, to the the human DNA saying, you know, we need bigger blood vessels to this demand point. It's continuing to ask for more blood. Please, you know, rebuild the road. Give it more blood. In the at the mitochondria level, what happens is uh-huh. is that the mit is that the mitochondria say, well, we need we need to have more of us so that we can utilize the oxygen that's going to be delivered. So we're going to divide like bacteria in that muscle cell, and there will be literally more mitochondria in the muscle cell. So this is where the high intensity interval training comes in. Is you're when you do that, you're you're dropping past your energy. Um, you're past your mitochondria. You're basically overloading the mitochondria with your demand and then starting a process that will result in bigger muscles with more mitochondria and bigger, bigger veins and arteries. And the, the fact that you are sending this demand signal multiple times speeds up the process a lot. So just if you're just kind of jogging for, you know, jogging along at four miles an hour for, let's say 30 minutes, you don't get as much muscle as if you sprint for 30 seconds and then jog for 90 seconds and then sprint for and so on. And so you get a lot more bang for that 20 minutes. The problem is you also increase your energy because when you hit that uh, that threshold where you've outrun the mitochondria, then you have oxidative stress. And that a little bit of oxidative stress is good, but too much is not good, and you can exhaust yourself. And if you do too much hit uh, high in- high intensity interval training, you can actually really kind of put the mitochondria on the ropes for a couple of days. And so you need to be moderate about how you do that. But uh, ultimately, that's kind of where we're at on. Uh, exercise and mitochondria. If you run past your mitochondria, you have to revert to the bacterial version. And there you only get eight molecules of ATP, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, That uh, allows you to, you get some energy, but you're wasting a whole lot of carbon bonds to do that. So uh, the end, you're generating a lot of acid and a lot of oxidative stress. And those oxygen-free right. radicals injure the cells, and that's why you have the stiffness and the soreness if you push yourself into that anaerobic metabolism. Right, right. I, I can see that. So, so you're basically saying that, I mean, it's probably a good thing to kind of do these little uh, high, high intense, short-term stressors, uh, like you said, in a jog or something, but that, and then just do a recovery period and, mm-hmm. and you know, just enough to kind of just kickstart the process. Right. And you don't, you don't want to overdo it. More is not better. There is a right dose for this, and you can find recommendations for starting out. But I, if someone's going to start out, I'm like ten minutes tops, and then right. you'll you'll know, you'll feel when you can go to twelve minutes and sixteen and so on. Your your body's going to tell you, but you want to allow sure, at sure. least twenty. You know, you want to do it at no more often than every other day, and you have to be careful because you're putting a stress on your tendons and your ligaments. And so this is one where stretching afterwards, you, you don't want to build short muscle. So you want to build long muscle because short muscle is going to tear things loose or cause tendonitis. And then you've right, sidelined right. yourself for months. Tendonitis takes a long time to heal. So that's that's oh, kind of the download. All right. Well, it. you're welcome. Oh, that's good. That was- 
that was quite useful and uh, nice to talk, hear it again. And you brought it up a little bit, and you're like, wait, didn't we see talk about this two years ago? So good you, 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 you kind of re-educated it. Thank you. Thank you so very much for the call. I've learned a lot about uh, stuff in the meantime, so hopefully uh, that was a more, uh, if not oh, more succinct, awesome. more uh, at least more learned uh, explanation. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening, but stay Thank safe, you. okay? Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Uh, we have Pat in Santa Cruz. Uh, Pat writes, what are your thoughts about going to movie theaters, concerts, or events like that? They generally require masks and often admit only a certain number of people and allow space between people. Some also require proof of vaccination, though I think this is changing. I know things are always changing, so what's true this week might not be true next week. Uh, How safe do you think it is now to go to movies or concerts these days? Well, first of all, this varies by region. And the state public health site uh, for the state of California or whatever state you're in will have maps that show you where the hotspots are because it's uneven. And so the first thing is that I want to say is that there is no blanket answer, but we have some parameters that we can use. And one of those parameters is something called uh, test positivity case positivity. So that's how many people, if you have 100,000 people, what percentage of them are going to be, if you do, you know, are going to be positive and what's the the test positivity rate. So number of cases per 100,000 in a local area is above 20. You want to be careful below 20. You can kind of relax and allowing for whatever is the individual business, because those still have the prerogative to uh, make you wear a mask or make you show identification. These are private entities, and they can decide to have a higher standard. But it is the state public health uh, officer that dictates the floor, unless you have a very, unless you have a reason for your local public health officer to wish a higher standard. They can't be more lenient, but they can be more strict than the state one, because obviously the state one is for the entire state, and the local public health officer has to take into account whether they're in a hot spot or not. So hospitalizations right now in our county are not bad. Cases are definitely dropping, and I, uh, you can go to santacruzhealth.org and wander around and find what it, and find out what you uh, want to know about the the uh, cases per 100,000 in the county. I have not looked at that uh, since Monday. And as of Monday, we were still uh, hovering in that 20. Um, we were, I think we were above the 20 range, if I'm recalling correctly. So we were still mask mandate and uh, inside. But there's a lot of talk about changing that for obvious reasons. And th- the real question is, you know, let's think about the kids. Let's, we need to protect the kids. But an older adult has a different calculus. But uh, the children are not as getting as sick. And w- there's all kinds of problems, especially with early childhood education that are manifest. So we have to weigh the risk of making our teachers sick and not having enough ed- educators and the adverse effect of that. But to get to Pat's question, Concerts, movie theaters, and events like that, as long as there's social distancing, are and are are probably fine. People getting right on top of each other, closer to that, eating, drinking, laughing, shouting, you're gonna you're gonna catch some Omicron. Now, we're not seeing if you're vaccinated and boosted much of a problem from that, but you know there are some people. Who got who have gotten really sick and are sitting in the ICU right now because they didn't get vaccinated and they probably would have had a light case of Omicron and instead they've they've been they've managed to get very very sick and will probably have long term uh, difficulty recovering from this avoidable illness. So if you're over if you're over fifty, I think that's the advice I'm going to give. I would stick with movie theaters where people wear masks, concerts where people wear masks, and restaurants outside. 
where there's just not going to, you're not going to develop a concentration of things. So many of the local restaurants have heaters and uh, they've been very good about the spacing. So it's when you, it's when everybody takes their mask off to eat, that's when the Omicron is going to go to town. But if everybody's wearing a mask inside, there, I think, is ex- there's very low risk of getting, if you're vaccinated, of getting bad disease. If you're not vaccinated, what can I say? You need to rethink that. You really do. You need to actually think about it scientifically. Uh, look at the science. Try going outside of your bubble if you're in a bu- if you think you might be in a bubble. You know, go go look around because there's lots of data from all over the world. You don't trust the United States government. You know, go go look at the go look at the data from Israel or South Africa, and it's pretty clear. Vaccinations make a big difference in severe disease. So, what are you waiting for? Let's see. I've got a couple more emails, but I think I might uh, move to this story because I'm very excited. I think we're just about to weaponize probiotics for the treatment of recurrent C. difficile. C. difficile is a toxic bacteria. It makes a toxin that causes severe diarrhea. And um, one of its cousins, you will have heard of, Clostridia tetanae, that makes the tetanus toxoid. We've all been vaccinated about that from that because if you get tetanus, you can die. And it's a very painful death. So nobody wants to go there. There is... A therapy, antibiotics, but the problem with antibiotics is that while you, is that antibiotics cause C. difficile by disrupting the microbiome. You treat the C. difficile with more antibiotics. Well, catch 22, then you've continued the disruption of the microbiome. And a lot of people relapse because the C. difficile, even though it's been beaten back to no living C. difficile by the antibiotics. The antibiotics cannot destroy the spores. So it's effectively a weed. And as soon as you stop spraying Roundup on it, it comes back because the seeds are in the soil. The spores are in the gut. And about 12%, sorry, that's wrong. A lot of people, and I don't have an actual number, experience recurrent C. difficile. There's uh, 20,000 deaths annually. It's a non-trivial uh, illness. And a lot of people will, as much as 10 or 15%, will have episodes of this so that they we're not able to eradicate it. And so this study was the, is a level three study. So this is going to be a drug soon. It's going to be available. And I think it's going to be a real game changer. Uh, what they were looking at is people who had recurrent C. difficile. Uh, you and they gave people a probiotic consisting of uh, Firmicutes spores. Firmicutes is one of the probiotics. It's an anaerobe, and in fact, we look at your Firmicutes to bacterioidetes ratios when we're trying to determine whether you have a healthy microbiome because that that's a really good indicator and you can get that out of just running a DNA on some stool. Now, within a healthy microbial community, the Firmicutes uh, produce a lot of secondary bile acids. And that means that they take your bile acids and they ferment them. And those secondary bile acids actually inhibit the germination of the C. difficile spore. So having it's like ground cover preventing the weeds from germinating by keeping the light away from them. Well, the these when we look at people who have recurrent C. difficile, we see that they have high levels of primary bile acids which facilitate the sporula, the spore germination. So this study was very effective in uh, reducing the levels of uh, recurrence of C. difficile. I'm about to give you the numbers. 
uh, the percentage of people who recurred in the placebo group, and again, we're talking about 300 people here, was 40%. And the percentage of people that recurred in the SER 109, which is the name of this product, was 12%. So that's that's really substantial. That's a that's you know a 60% reduction in the number from the going from 40% to 12% is amazing. And this was highly highly uh sensitive like point a uh, p value of 0.001. So we are talking about an effective oral therapy that can be given uh I think they gave it for three weeks. They they gave it for uh, three weeks, I believe. I'm just going to check. And yes, they they gave it for eight weeks, and it was extremely effective. And I think, you know, we've been talking about stool transplants to try to deal with these recurrent. This is so much better and so much more scalable and so much safer because when you do a stool transplant. Whatever that person's got, you're likely to get. And, you know, you don't necessarily know that you're getting healthy stool from the the person who's giving the transplant. And you can get all kinds of negative viruses, hepatitis, you know, bad stuff. So stool transplants, a great first start, but to have it, to have it in this form is much, much better. And I'm expecting this to be weaponized and brought out as a drug in the not-too-distant future. And uh, let's see, I'm checking the emails now. I have one from Tim. And uh, Tim writes, I have really bad uh, gut problems and multiple chemical sensitivity. Oh, poor Tim. Tried three milligrams of melatonin for sleep. Within 20 minutes, got extremely dizzy, lasted a while. After two more attempts at same dose, Skipped a few days, then tried one milligram. Same thing, super dizzy. Are there some of this that who, for whatever reason, cannot tolerate? Well, yeah, Tim, I think that you, probably because of your bad gut problems, have a very permeable gut. And multiple chemical sensitivity, for me, means that your biotransformation apparatus, your ability to transform compounds, is impaired. So I suspect that... There is a dose for melatonin that might work for you, but you're going to have to go really, really low because remember I said that the amounts that we produce are like in the 100 microgram range? Well, if you were absorbing all of that one milligram because it was just going right through your leaky gut, you could end up with a very super physiological level. And we do see people who just have to take quasi-homeopathic amounts. There are, of course, other things that you could look at. Chemical sensitivity has a lot. Uh, it, it shouldn't be viewed as, a, as an endpoint. It should be v- viewed as a nadir. In other words, it's, this is how bad you've gotten, but you can get better. And I really would encourage you to come and see me or another functional medicine doctor if you're, uh, let's see, I really don't know where you're located, but you can find a functional medicine doctor. Find, go, go to the website, uh, functionalmedicine.org, and click on the Find a Physician. Choose someone who's passed their certification, which is just like a board exam, and get yourself some help. This isn't, you don't have to live like this. And you can rebuild that gut, that gut barrier, and you can improve your detoxification. And just like we were talking earlier about mitochondria, and energy, tra- uh, energy generation and muscles, well, your liver uses a lot of energy to do all of this biotransformation. And so you have to be checked for things that might be interfering with your abilities at the mitochondrial level. Things like heavy metals and certain pollutants can definitely do that, as can certain chronic infections. So you need, in- you need investigation and you need to get help, and I hope you'll, you'll hear me and do that. So I wanted to talk about an article that I came across about transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, for quitting smoking. And this, I missed this, it happened in 2020, but the F, uh, there was a trial 
uh, looking at smoking cessation, which I will tell you about. Um, but first, let me tell you what transcranial magnetic stimulation is. It's basically a coil, like a little bigger than a hockey puck, that's placed on top of your head or over an area in your brain. Brief electrical impulses, about four milliseconds within the coil, create a small electric current in the brain. This is electromagnetic induction. So it's an electromagnet. You generate a magnetic field. The magnetic field causes the flow of electricity, just like the alternator. Uh, and in your car, this is exactly the same thing, assuming you don't have an electric car anyway. that's It's exactly the same way that you recharge your battery. So, if you and, and the interesting thing is that there's a code for this. So, if you want to stimulate uh, the cortex of the brain, and it'll reach about three centimeters. So, you're getting into the cortex, through your skull and into the cortex with these magnetic impulses. And... Uh, if you want to, if you want to increase activity, you go above five hertz, and if you want to decrease activity, you go at one hertz, which is like one beat per second, and you'll actually calm parts of the brain. So typically, what'll happen is that they'll put you in the chair, they'll put the coil over the motor cortex of your hand, which is located down by your ear, and they'll stimulate it. And they're going to figure out how much stimulation it co- uh, it needs to cause a contraction of your hand. And once you've got a minimal contraction, that's your dose. And then they start working on the area that they're interested in. There have been studies in Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, PTSD, and Alzheimer's that look promising. But this is the first one to be FDA approved. So in this study, they, it was double-blind, randomized. You had to be a smoker. They went uh, let's see, 12 sites in the U.S. and two sites in Israel. They had a total of 262 patients that got randomized into active or treatment. Uh, you had to be a heavy smoker, uh, you, and you had to not have gone w- without smoking for more than three months in the, in the last year, and... They didn't just do the the TMS, but they they did uh, a provocation procedure. So for five minutes before they uh, did it, they tried to induce nicotine craving. Think about smoking, listen to an audio recording of someone uh, handling a cigarette in a lighter, view images of people smoking. And then they gave them 18 minutes of repetitive TMS. Uh, and over the area of the brain that is associated with dopamine and reward stimulation and monitored how long, whether they stopped smoking and how, uh, and how successful they were. And what they found was that uh, they got quit abstinence, so that's four weeks of continuous quit rates, and also short and long term, so they had four-month follow-ups on this. And... They verified it using urine cotinine levels. So if people were not, were in fact not smoking if they said they weren't. So how effective was it? Well, compared to placebo, it was three times more effective. The active treatment group was able to quit in one out of three people. And the placebo group was one out of 10 people were able to quit while participating in this. So coming to a, uh, you know, the remember the old Schick centers for smoking where they they had you smoke and then they gave you electrical shocks trying to uh, create an adversive stimuli? That that goes way, way back, probably 70s, I think. It, it really didn't work. Uh, negative conditioning rarely does, by the way. Uh, parents go to the positive parenting websites and start reading about how uh, positive discipline uh, works way better. And by the way, that's making the kid discipline themselves in order to get reinforcement, but not necessarily toys or treats. So it's a really interesting uh, parenting website. And I recently introduced my sister uh, who has grandchildren to it. And she's uh, reported back to me that just doing some of these 
very simple interventions has really made a difference with the kids, one of whom who has ADD. So that's a really nice uh, thing to know about. So another short study that came out recently that I thought was, well, it was interesting and I've seen it because as an acupuncturist, people come in with persistent pain. So this was a study looking, it was a big study, North and South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia. And they had 15,000 patients. Most of them, uh, the average age was 69. And they'd gone through a bunch of surgeries, different kinds of surgeries. They had had uh, at least one night in the hospital. And at one year, uh, 3.3% of people had persistent pain at the incision site. And that's a lot, okay? Some surgeries were worse than others. It was less than 2% for prostatectomy and uh, hysterectomy, but 6% for spinal surgery, and I've definitely seen that. You take care of that disc, but now the scar is painful. And this pain was neuropathic pain. There was numbness, tingling, allodynia. That's a burning sensation. In about 81, in roughly 81% of the people use those descriptors. And about half of them said it was interfering with some aspect of their activity. It's not rare to have persistent pain after surgery. And I will say one of the ones that I see most often is hernia surgery. So some years ago, I started doing a proactive anti-inflammatory treatment, the same one you do for a sprained ankle, in the immediate post-off period of individuals who had had hernia surgery. And yes, it's not scientific, but so far none of my patients, including those who already had persistent pain from other surgeries, developed any problems from the hernia surgery. And like I said, this is a fairly common one for people to get. Um, If you are a person who has persistent pain after surgery, think about getting an acupuncture procedure called scar deactivation. This can be done in several different ways. Sometimes we inject Uh, a homeopathic solution into the scar. Sometimes we just use needles and electrical stimulation. But when I find someone not getting better and there's a scar on the meridian that where they're having the pain, I always do a scar deactivation. And I have been really impressed with the results of this. And this is something that all acupuncturists know how to do. So please, if this sounds like you, make a point of seeking help. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.